How's that? There we go. Lots of fun. Well, officially, happy Father's Day to all of you dads out here. It is good to see all of you. I am happy to see all of you this week. Um, missed you all last week. We were away officiating a wedding out in Pennsylvania for a close family friend. Um, knew this girl since she was a couple of months old. I had been blamed for almost trying to kill her once because I gave her a strawberry shake when I was babysitting her when she was a few months old. Oh, you can't give babies strawberries. They're allergic to them. That's nonsense. I found that out. I had to research that so I could bring it up at the wedding. But, uh, <laughs> but we missed you guys being away. So my brother Chris painted this a number of years ago, and he entitled it The Downfall of Man. And he gave it to me. And I've had it in my office Uh, both at the last church and here, for a lot of years. We all know the story of Adam and Eve. We know the story of the Garden of Eden. We, We had paradise. Everything worked right. There's no sin in the world, no evil in the world. Everything was perfect. Everything worked exactly as it was supposed to work. They could do anything and everything that they wanted in the garden. Everything was there for their enjoyment. There was just one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Don't eat of its fruit because the day you do, you'll surely die. And I'd like to think that if God spoke directly to me, and said, I can do anything and everything, enjoy everything in that place where everything worked perfectly, except eat the fruit of one tree, I'd like to think that I would completely avoid that tree and all of its fruit. Like, why risk all of it? But we know the rest of the story, don't we? Satan, in the form of a serpent, uh, shows up, He approaches Eve and he asks a question and subtly twists the reality and the truth. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Eve replies and says, no, we're allowed to eat from the trees in the garden with one exception. The tree that's in the middle, the the tree that's there, we're not even allowed to touch it. And Satan responds, phooey. That's not true. You won't die. In fact, if you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like God. So there's this beautiful tree with beautiful fruit and the tempter whispering in her ear, twisting the truth, Deceiving her, and Adam with Eve, sta- or Eve rather, with Adam standing right there next to her, takes the fruit and eats it, and just like that, sin enters the world. Nothing works properly anymore. Here we are today, and everything is falling apart. Stupid. I wouldn't have fallen for that. You wouldn't have fallen for that, right? 
Yeah, and yet we do every day. Because Satan's real. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a twister of the truth, and he's a murderer. And his tactics have never, ever really changed. He used the same tactics on the Son of God, which is what we're going to look at this morning as we open up the Gospels and look at some more of Jesus' words. So let's pray. Father, we, we know the story of how everything got messed up. And logically, we would think we would never fall for such a thing, and yet by the responses in the room, we all know that somehow we would have fallen for the same deception. Father, help us this morning as we, we open your word, as we open the Gospels and, and look at the temptations of Jesus. Help us to learn from him how to overcome temptation, how to emerge victorious that we might live our lives better for you, that you might be glorified by the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We find a very abbreviated account of this same account in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, over in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, and then almost identical account in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. We're going to focus and start in Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you. And they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. As we get to this portion in, in, in the Gospels and in Jesus' life, Jesus is, is beginning to prepare for his ministry. This is, this is before the calling of the first disciples, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This is like the very beginning. He was just baptized by John. 
And upon being baptized, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted by Satan. Matthew says that Jesus was led into the wilderness, indicating the Holy Spirit's work of leading Jesus to a place. Luke, on the other hand, uses a slightly different twist and says that that Jesus left the Jordan, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, indicating and putting an emphasis on the Holy Spirit's work in ministry in the midst of what was going on during that time. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, presumably praying during that time, because that's why you fasted, so that you can focus on prayer, devote yourself to prayer. And Satan shows up on the scene. In this passage, we notice a couple of of references back to the Old Testament. If you have a reference Bible, you'll see some of that. Uh, First, we need to go back to Genesis 3, right? The first Adam met by Satan, enticed, tempted. The first Adam blows it. He falls for Satan's temptations. But here we have Jesus, the, the Son of God, also called the Son of Adam. In Luke chapter 3, actually right before this passage, Luke refers to him as the son of Adam, the second Adam, going to be met by Satan in the same way, enticed, tempted, just like the first Adam, only he doesn't mess up. Adam and Eve could have had, they could have had everything, they had everything that they needed, everything that they could want, and yet they fell for it. Jesus, on the other hand, is hungry, 40 days, 40 nights without food. I don't know how you are, but four hours without food makes me irritable. We had a a rough weekend here. Um, The sewer lines backed up out in the parking lot and backed up into the house, into the parsonage, and... um, Friday, we were just dealing with that all day and working and trying to clean, and it's like 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and Tammy and I are going over to my mom's to finally shower for the day, and like I find myself shaking because I hadn't stopped to eat all day. Well, that's, that's not true. I had made some nachos and started to eat and got about four or five chips in when I had to go back outside, but um, like I hadn't eaten, and like I was shaking, I was irritable. I was hungry after one day. Jesus, for 40 days, 40 nights, not eating, and he's met by Satan. First Adam had everything he could have wanted and needed and fell for it. Jesus, the second Adam, starving, weak. And Satan meets him in the midst of that. Second, we see a reflection of Israel and their exodus in this passage, right? Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights before God fasting, preparing for his ministry. So we see that kind of a bounce back and reflection. The nation of Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Um, so we see a lot, of, a lot of back and forth as we see, see this whole story emerging and looking back and reflecting on what happened in the Old Testament, and how it did not necessarily work. 
So Jesus responds to Satan after each of these temptations. He responds with scripture that draws a parallel to what the nation of Israel was told during their disobedience. He responds out of the book of Deuteronomy in each of those cases. So let's look at the temptations. First temptation in verse 3. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan starts off by hitting Jesus like right in the gut. No pun intended, right? Jesus is hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Problem solved. Hits him right where he was out at. Satan's first pitch revolves tempting Jesus about basic human needs, about appetites, and about physical desires. Those things that, that we crave, those things that we need to survive. Satan hits them right there. That was the first pitch. His appeal, you know, you can do something to satisfy those very real needs, appetites, and desires that you have. You can do something about it. Jesus' response in verse 4, he answers, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. See, while Jesus is certainly hungry, he realized that being sustained by the truth of the word of God was more important than physical food. Being sustained by the word of God was more important than the appetite that he had or the appetites that we have or the physical needs that he had in that moment. He was living in the awareness of God's promises and care of him. And he was solely relying on God in the midst of that. Our application. The satisfaction of physical desires cannot cannot take precedence over obedience to the word of God. Let me say that again. Our satisfaction of physical desires, needs, wants, appetites, desires cannot take precedence over obedience to the word of God. That's really hard. The needs we have, the, the appetites within us, the desires, they're real. And they're strong. And don't think for a second that it was different for Jesus. He hadn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights. He was hungry. He wanted food. He was weak because he hadn't eaten. In fact, we see at the very end of this section that after Satan leaves him, angels come and begin to serve him. He needed angels to serve him and to minister to him. He was not all right. He was 100% man, and as 100% man, that part of him was hungry and weak. But more important to Jesus than satisfying his basic need or appetite or desire at that moment was doing the will of the Father. Living in obedience to God. See, we often find ourselves, we find ourselves dwelling on our needs, on our appetites, our desires. And just like he did to Jesus, Satan will start to whisper little lies and distortions in our ears. 
He will take truth and distort it and whisper it to us. He whispers that we can feed ourselves. We don't need to wait on God. We don't need to focus on being satisfied by God's word and living in obedience to it. After all, a loving God wouldn't want you to miss out on this. A loving God wouldn't tell you that if everybody else has it, you shouldn't have it or you shouldn't do it. Satan still whispers these these lies and distorted truths to, to help us justify succumbing to our needs, appetites, and desires. And the examples run the gamut, don't they? It could be little silly things to us, like, like disobeying silly, stupid little traffic laws. No turn here? Eh, there's no bike coming. 55 miles an hour on Route 70. So I was traveling Route 70 yesterday, coming back from a funeral out in Philly. I cannot count the number of cars who, in irritation, passed me on Route 70 because I was locked in at 55 miles an hour. They don't like 55 miles an hour. And that's a silly little law. I mean, if you've ever driven Route 70 until you get to the circles, it's wide open. Why not make it 80? Right? That's what everybody wants to travel. Why not do it? I can disobey that law. It's silly. It's stupid. I'm running late. Everybody else is speeding. I can do it. It's inconvenient to go down and around, so I'll just make a a quick turn here, even though I'm not supposed to. I'll disobey that traffic law. disobey this law. No big deal. How I spend my money. I can spend it on whatever I want to spend it on, right? No big deal. Everyone else has it. God would want me to fit in. He wouldn't want me to stand out. He'd want me to have that too. He loves me. I can dress this way or that way. Right? Everyone else dresses that way. God wouldn't really want me to stand out and be made fun of. I, I can watch this or I can listen to this or I can engage in this activity or read this. Everybody else is doing it. It's just, It's not that bad. Loving God won't really want me to miss out on that. Because the beat's good. The actors are really good. Everybody else is having fun doing it. But what does God ultimately desire from us? He desires obedience. He desires that we trust him in the midst of all of it. Not that we succumb to our own wants and and needs and appetites and desires. Matthew 6, 25, 34, Jesus addresses uh, some of this in telling us not to worry about all of that stuff, but instead to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? 
And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. And that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow. Won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, 4, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, when we seek, when we seek God first, when we delight in him above everything else, first and foremost, when we live in obedience to his word, causing us to live in his delight, it's a game changer. Our needs will be met. Our appetites will be satisfied. Our desires will be fulfilled because they will, they will line up and be in sync completely with God's. And all the other stuff that we seek out, in this world, because we think it will make us happy, because we think it will bring us fulfillment, never really does it leaves us empty because it's not in line with God and what he desires for us. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all that stuff will be added. You will never live in want. You'll never live in need. Your desires will all be met. Your appetites will all be met because they will line up and be in sync with God. Second temptation. You see that in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. All right, Jesus, you're the son of God. When he says, if you're the son of God, he's acknowledging that Jesus is the son of God at this point. You're God's son. He's your father. Throw yourself down. Throw yourself down a certain death from way up here and let God prove his faithfulness to you. You're his son. He's not going to let anything happen to you. Let him prove his faithfulness to you. His appeal is to prove to yourself that God is really who he says he is and that he's going to be faithful to you. Satan's whisper is prove to yourself that God is really who he says he is and that he's going to be faithful to you. In fact, Satan even quotes scripture here. That's fun, right? He's quoting scripture. How, how wrong could it be? How tempting could it be? He quotes Psalm 91, 11 to 12. He says, you know, God's not going to let anything happen to you. He promises that in his word, Jesus. You can trust that, right? Well, Satan, Jesus' response is, is also written, do not test the Lord your God. 
Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. See, Jesus recognizes that even though Satan just quoted that scripture from Psalms, that Psalm 91 is really speaking of God's protection for events that befall us or happen to us. It's not to be used as an excuse to test God's protection by seeking out danger. When God had the psalmist write verses 11 and 12 in chapter 91 of the Psalms, it wasn't saying, go skydiving, leave the parachute, jump out, God will catch you. It's, it's, a, it's a promise. Right? Satan takes it out of context, and he does that all the time. So many of the temptations that we face, we, we justify because Satan is, is helping us to, to, you know, well, Scripture doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't actually say that. Or it does say this, but we take it out of context. We're not looking at it fully. See, Jesus' response echoes in the history of Israel. Right? Israel spoke of God's goodness They spoke of God's faithfulness. They spoke of God's protection, but they constantly doubted God. They talked about how great God was, but they doubted why God would send them into the desert. They doubted whether they would ever see the promised land. They doubted God's care for them. Would God really feed them like he promised he would? Would he take care of their needs? Later on in their history, we we see that the nation of Israel would doubt God, would take care of them as their king. God said, you don't need a human king. I'm your king. I will take care of you. And what did they do? No, we really, we need a human king. We need to be like everybody else. We can't really trust that you're going to take care of us that way because we really don't see you, God. We need a human here who can be a warrior for us. And so they got what they wanted, and that became a mess. Jesus' response to all of this is Satan tempts him to, to throw himself down and to trust God is that we're not to test God. We're to trust him completely. The lie and distorted truth that Satan whispered to Jesus was that God the Father existed to serve him. Do you catch that? That's what Satan was really trying to whisper in Jesus' ears by telling him to throw himself down. God the Father exists to serve you. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus understood it. He existed to serve the Father. He existed to serve the Father. I'm not to test God and his faithfulness. I'm to trust his faithfulness. That he will come through when he says he's going to come through. Our application, Satan whispers the same line, distorted truth to us today. That God exists to serve us. We set God up for a test to prove his faithfulness to us. Is God really for me or is he against me? So, so this is a somewhat extreme example, but a very real one that I would hear over and over every June for the 30 years that I worked with students. 
Every June, as the school year would be drawing to a close and final exams were just days or hours away, this prayer request would come flooding in. It's Sunday night at 8.30, and we've got a living room full of high school students praying, and the prayer request is, pray that I will do well on my final exams or pray that I pass my class. When's the exam? Tomorrow morning. Have you studied for it? Not yet. (laughs) Or did you turn in all your work for the class on time and write all the papers uh, you'll pass? No, but pray that I pass the class anyway. (laughs) These kinds of tests, as I said, silly and and a little extreme, but these are the kind of tests that, that we do to God all the time in an attempt to control God, presuming that God exists to serve us. But it's really the other way around. And Jesus recognized that as Satan whispered that lie in his ear. We exist to serve God. And as we serve him, as we trust him, and as we walk in obedience to his will as it's revealed in his word, we'll find him completely faithful in our lives. We may not always understand the outcome. We won't always understand every situation we're in and and how it's for his glory and and how it's for our good. But we'll find him faithful in the middle of it. As I was studying for this, I was reminded of the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Uterine and their wives were missionaries called to reach an unreached tribe in Latin America in Ecuador. The Aucas, whom these men were trying to reach, were located in a really, really remote area of the rainforest down in Ecuador. And they were an isolated tribe known for their savage violence, both against their own people and and those who came in from the outside. But with a passion and a call from God to be the first missionaries uh, to, to reach these people and to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with them, the missionaries began making regular flights over those villages in September of 1955, dropping from airplanes gifts, which were reciprocated. After several months of exchanging gifts back and forth, on January 3rd, 1956, the missionaries established a camp at Palm Beach. It's a sandbar along the river there, just a short distance from the villages. But their efforts came to an end just five days later, when all five men were attacked and speared by a group of Aka warriors. Obviously, the widows and the families of these five men were devastated. But, but in the midst of the tragedy, they trusted God, and they found him faithful. So much so that several years after the death of all these men, the widow of Jim Elliot, Elizabeth, and the sister of Nate Saint, Rachel, returned to Ecuador as missionaries with the Summer Institute of Linguistics to live among these same people. And this eventually led to the conversion of many of them, including some of those who actually were involved in the killing. And today, the gospel is alive there. It's an amazing story that's captured in in numerous places, including the book by Elizabeth Elliot entitled Through Gates of Splendor, 
A great book I would recommend reading or through the movie, The End of the Spear, again, recommend both of them to you as you grow in your understanding of what it means to trust God in the midst of the lies and distortion and the whispers of Satan in your ear that God exists to serve you. Learn what it means that we exist to serve him. See, it seems that when we walk our own path and do our own thing, we find ourselves putting God to the test, challenging him to show up and to prove his faithfulness and protection. But when we walk in step with his will, as it's revealed in his word, we can trust in his faithfulness. Temptation number three, verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Luke actually flips the order of the second and third temptations as we see them here in Matthew. Luke actually includes a little bit more narrative Uh, So let me read that as well. Luke says, So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Satan's appeal is, is all of this can be yours if you will just simply bow down and worship me. And Satan's speaking a half-truth here, something that he's really good at. While it's true that he has authority here on earth, he still sits completely under God's authority. He can do nothing that God doesn't allow him to do. The most he could have really done in this situation was make Jesus the political and military Messiah the Jews falsely anticipated anyway. He offered Jesus a false sense of power and authority. He offered Jesus the Messiahship without the cross. And it was what the Jews wanted. It's what they were looking for. So not only did he offer Jesus something that was really cool, power, and authority. He also offered him a way to do it without going through the suffering of the cross. And he also offered him the popularity because that's what the Jews were wanting and waiting for. We see that throughout all the Gospels. That that's what the Jews were looking for. But maybe in no greater place than, than Jesus' conversation with Peter in Matthew 16, 21 to 22, which we looked at two weeks ago in the context of following Jesus. And from, that, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Why? Because what was Jesus or Peter looking for? He was looking for that political, military Messiah. If Jesus is going to be crucified and killed, how's that ever going to happen? Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. 
And how, what, how does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. God's plan all along for Jesus, for the Messiah, was the cross. And Satan, likely understanding God's plan here, is offering Jesus the power and control without the cross in an attempt to thwart God's ultimate plan, which would have kept all of mankind in bondage and separated from God for eternity. Jesus' response, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus had had enough. He tells Satan to be gone, get out of here. He responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. No one and nothing is worthy of worship other than God. He alone is to be worshipped and served. As Jesus is quoted here, or as Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, he adds the word serve, emphasizing that real worship, real worship is taking place only when we're also serving what we're claiming to be worshiping. See, because worship and service are intrinsically intertwined. What we say we're doing is authenticated by what we actually do. It's why in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy to pay close attention to your life and to your teaching, or to your life and your doctrine and to watch them closely. See, because what we say we believe is proven by what we actually do. What we say we're worshiping is authenticated by how we are serving the one or the, the, the thing that we're saying we're worshiping. Our application, who or what does Satan tempt us with to divert our worship from God? Who or what does Satan tempt us with to divert our worship from God? See, I'm guessing in a crowd like this that there aren't many of you who have a little corner in your house or a closet where you have some idols set up with some candles and incense and you go there and you bow down and you sing songs to the idol during the day. Now, there are other religions in the world where that takes place, but I'm guessing amongst you that that's probably not what we're going to find. But who and what does Satan tempt you to worship? Because make no mistake, Satan continues to distract our worship and to gently coerce us into idolatry and the worship of other things. Because worship is ascribing ultimate worth to someone or something. Making that person the object, the pinnacle of our attention or affection or gaze. So maybe it's our work or our status or our possessions that we worship, that we idolize. Maybe it's our families. Maybe it's our favorite musician or actor or artist or our favorite sports team. Maybe it's our entertainment. Maybe it's our favorite hobby. Maybe it's our comfort or security. Maybe it's our traditions. Maybe family traditions. Maybe church traditions. 
Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's our education or our grades or our resume. What does Satan coerce you to divert your attention from God to worship something else? What's he using in your life? How do you know if you've slipped into worshiping someone or something else? Well, who or what is the focus of your greatest affection? Is it God or is it someone or something else? How do you react when your favorite team loses? How do you react when your favorite actor or musician dies? Is life over? Where do you spend the bulk of your time? Who or what is the object of your greatest affection? And is that demonstrated by your time and service? So Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That doesn't apply just to money. The principle is that we can't serve two masters. We can't worship God and something else. See, we often find ourselves listening to Satan's lies that we can find ultimate worth in someone or something other than God. That we can find fulfillment in worshiping something else or someone else, but it's a lie. God and God alone is to be worshipped and served. Everything else will leave us feeling empty. It will leave us searching and hollow. The other things we find ourselves drawn to leave us, leave us hopeless. They leave us full of me, uh, meaninglessness and purposelessness in our lives. I, I like the way the Christian Southern rock band Need to Breathe says it in the chorus of their song, Money and Fame. They say, what do you kids want to know about now? I made enough to make a young gun proud. Money and fame bring a man shame. Ain't no doubt about it. What do you kids want to know about now? I found the bottom from the top somehow. Money and fame bring a man to shame. Ain't no doubt about it. When we worship other stuff, Leaves us empty, leaves us hopeless, leaves us without meaning, leaves us without purpose. And ultimately, it leaves us sitting at the bottom. I found the bottom from the top somehow. There are Christian musicians who had it all, they were at the top of the game, and it fell apart because they started taking their eyes off of who they were really worshiping. And once they hit rock bottom and realized they were there, they had to get right with God. So what do we learn about Satan in this passage? I think we learn a few things. One, he doesn't always bring with him what initially appears to be evil. In this encounter with Jesus, we don't see the guy in the red suit, the horns, and the pitchfork. 
We don't see murder. We don't see what appears as evil to us. We just see subtle, subtleness, little whispers, little twists. Second thing we learn about Satan is that he thrives on deception and enticement. And third, he loves to twist the truth just enough to make it a lie. Fourth, he entices us to believe that God exists to serve us as opposed to us existing to serve God. And five, he's going to distract us with anything and everything to draw our worship away from him, away from God. That's what we learn about Satan here. What do we learn about overcoming temptation in our lives? Now, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. So let me just pause right there. Anything that you or I deal with in temptation is nothing different. Even though you feel like you're isolated and you're living in the world yourself and nobody else could possibly understand the temptation I'm going through, Jesus says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Other people have gone through it. Other people continue to go through it. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. The power to overcome temptation is available to us. We need to be honest about temptation. The reality is, it's not that I can't. It's I won't. Because we can find victory. We can stop. We can stop giving in to the temptation. Jesus demonstrates four ways, four steps to resisting that temptation. One, to finding victory. One, resist. Right? He could have easily given in to any one of those temptations. He had the power and authority to turn stones into bread and feed himself. He could have jumped and called angels to rescue him. He could have done that. He says that much in Matthew twenty six fifty two to 53 during his arrest. After Peter pulls out the sword and slices off the ear of the, of the guard, right? we read that Jesus tells him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do, you not, or do you think that I cannot call on my father? And he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus knew real well that he could have called on God to catch him. Because as his rest, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels and this is all over right now? Jesus could have asserted his authority. He could have asserted his rulership. He could have accepted being the ruler of all the kingdoms of the world as the Messiah and decided against the cross, but he didn't give in to any of those temptations. He resisted the devil. James 4, 7 tells us, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We need to learn to resist. We have the power to do that. Second, second thing we learn about how Jesus was victorious here 
is that we need to be led by the Spirit. We can't resist Satan in and of our own strength. It doesn't work. Our power must come from the Holy Spirit and his leading. Jesus was full of the Spirit when he was led into the wilderness. He was full of the Spirit while he was in the midst of it in the wilderness. He recognizes that we cannot do it alone. Satan is going to try to deceive you. He's going to try and deceive us into thinking that in the midst of the temptation, that we're all alone. That in the midst of the hardship, that God has abandoned us. Or that we can handle it all on our own without God. We must not fall for the lies. To resist Satan, we must be full of the Spirit led by the Spirit, and relying on the power and strength of the Spirit. The third thing that we learn from Jesus about being victorious in temptation is that we must be led by the Word of God. I like how one person puts it. He says, if temptation is essentially getting us to go contrary to God's will for us, then knowing that will is what keeps us on track. We must be led by the Word of God. For in it, we find God's will for our lives. In it, we find the truth of life, which we use to contrast it to the lies of the world, the lies of the flesh, the lies that Satan whispers into our ears. When we compare the word of God to the words of the world, we'll recognize the lies. We'll understand how to confront the lies and how to follow God's will. Know the word of God, because Satan knows it as well. And he will whisper it to you out of context to try and convince you what he's tempting you with is okay. The only way you're going to know the word of God is how? By spending time in it. Spend time in it. The only way to resist is by knowing the word of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. In fact, I would encourage you all over the next day or two to sit down and read all of Psalm 119. It gives us an incredible insight into God's word and its importance in our lives. Resist. Know the word of God. Be led by the Spirit and focus on God's will. By knowing God's word, we'll be able to discern and know God's will for our lives. Know his will, pursue his will. Again, I like how one writer puts it, loving God may be the most important guideline for all decisions of our lives, big and small, because if we truly love God, we will not do anything contrary to his word and will for us. As you know and understand his will, by knowing and understanding this book, we make his will the focus and priority of our lives. So when the temptations come, we can ask ourselves, is this what God wants for me? Can I do this, and can I really love God if I do this? Am I being obedient to him in this situation, what I know he commands in this book? Because I know that if he says I love him, I will obey him. 
Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16 say this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. As we face temptation, may we find strength in being led by the Holy Spirit and direction by knowing God's will, by knowing his word, that we might find victory in resisting the lies and deceit of the evil one. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to to fully grasp the truth of your word sometimes. and It's hard for us to grasp that as Jesus was tempted, he really went through the same difficulties and hardship and, 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 and that we do. Because after all, he was God. We don't understand how someone can be fully God and fully man at the same time, but we know because of your word, that at those moments he laid aside his, his divinity. He laid aside the part of him that was God. And he was living in, in his pure humanity, suffering and going through the temptations just that, as we go through. That's what your word tells us, that he was tempted in every way just as we are. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn from the way that Jesus dealt with temptation. That we would live in resistance to Satan, that we would live being led by your Holy Spirit, living in his power, that we would would know your word and know your will for our lives. Father, help us to be victorious. Cause us to be victorious as we attempt to follow you. In the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're here, and you're a believer. Thinking through the temptation of Jesus should motivate us to obedience, but bring us to a place of thankfulness. Thankfulness for the gospel that even though we all sin and we all fail, we all deserve eternal punishment. God loved us so much that he sent his perfect only son to come here, die the death we deserve, rise again so if we can trust in him, we are saved, brought into relationship with God that we don't deserve and are given the ability to live a life in obedience to him. We should be brought to a place of thankfulness to God for his graciousness and forgiveness when we fail and We should be brought to a place of thankfulness for the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin, gives us the strength to obey, and the Holy Spirit who's indwelling is the evidence and the guarantee that we are a child of God even when we do stumble and fall. 
thank God for who He is and what He's done for us. And it would just be good for all of us, probably just to take time to think, where am I being tempted? Where do I fall? Where are my idols? Who and what do I really worship? And if you are here and have never trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, please talk to Pastor Rich or myself or one of the other elders. We'd love to talk to you about that. What we're going to do now is we're just going to pray, and then we're going to have our offer, and it's going to come from the back up. As it passes you, let's stand and let's sing praises to our great and good God. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your grace and your forgiveness even when we do fail. I pray, God, that you will bless this offering. In your name, amen.